Today's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Case Fleet. What could be more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where Case Fleet comes in. Case Fleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and to track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, Case Fleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Uh, Got a a really packed show this week. A little delay there. (laughs) He's thinking about all the news we have to get to. There's a a lot to cover. (laughs) He's eager, and so am I, frankly. (laughs) You sounded like you were frightened to start the show. (laughs) Well, uh, that's uh, uh, that's something we deal with every week, um, and uh, we shouldn't shame each other about it. So, yeah, we're despite uh, Alex's deep stage fright on. to to move on with this show, we're going to do it anyway. Um, yeah, a little later, the three of us are going to talk about um, some big happenings in opioid litigation. But I know we have some other interesting stories to get to first. So, um, why don't we dig right in? Yeah, I mean, later we're going to be talking about the the sprawling litigation over uh, the opioid epidemic. But before then, we're going to talk about another uh, huge case that that is made up of thousands of lawsuits, the litigation over uh, Roundup Weed Killer and accusations that it causes cancer. Um, More specifically, we're talking about uh, this week allegations that Bayer, which is the company that owns Roundup, um, that they're using pretty unusual procedural uh yeah. trickery creativity call it what you want to um to get the the case law to a place uh that that would be beneficial for them in a filing last week a group of plaintiffs accused Bayer of essentially trying to buy a, a favorable appellate ruling by striking this uh phony sham settlement with a former opponent in one of these cases um it's a deal that sees Bayer paying this ex-opponent to continue to appeal in the case. It's a very strange situation. Uh, you know, from one perspective, it's creative litigating. From another side, it's, you know, maybe are they are they fixing the fight? Uh, I think it's a very interesting case that I wanted to break down. I know we've talked about Roundup on the show before, but I, I think to get into whether or not this is fair play or not, we have to understand what exactly we're talking about in this suit and where we are in the in the timeline of of the lawsuit so what's the background here yeah i mentioned sprawling earlier and that's really the the right word because bayer is facing thousands of these lawsuits in courts around the country claiming that roundup causes cancer that the company and its predecessor monsanto which uh, bayer acquired in 2018 that they didn't do enough to warn people about the risk of cancer that um that uh, that could be caused by roundup um they've already paid out more than 10 billion dollars in settlements in these cases but there are still a ton of other ones uh pending in courts around the country um in one of those cases a federal judge issued a, a pretty notable ruling last year um he said that that bayer had no duty to warn consumers about uh roundup having a cancer risk because the epa the the federal environmental protection agency had previously approved the product's label um 
Now, a state law required that the company include that kind of warning, but the judge said that that law was preempted by uh, this federal regulatory approval that they had won from the EPA. Okay. That ruling, if it had wider application, would be a game changer for Bayer in beating all these other roundup cases, these thousands of other cases. Because it basically disposes of the core claim in most of these these lawsuits. Uh, but the so-called preemption argument that we're talking about here has been mostly rejected by by judges in other cases. And this ruling here is is only by a trial judge. It doesn't have any sort of um, uh, you know effect beyond this case. So what they really need is an appeals court or. I think from their perspective, better yet, the Supreme Court to weigh in and rule the same way on this preemption issue. So where do we get into the where does the issue arise with this settlement that may or may not be dirty pool or just creative lawyering? Let's 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 talk about that. Right. So in in this case where they won this ruling. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, after they won it, they they reached a settlement with the plaintiff, um, and it had this unusual quirk, which was the deal required the plaintiff to appeal the preemption ruling, um, which Bayer had won. Uh, it, it, it offered him more money if he eventually wins on that point, and it also has a penalty if he eventually drops the appeal. So in other words, Bayer was paying this plaintiff to appeal a ruling that Bayer themselves had won. It's a very unusual thing to see. Typically, Bayer would, you know, they wouldn't want someone to appeal a, a ruling that they had won. Um, but yeah, of they wouldn't the, want someone to, and also they can't do it themselves. Um, it, exactly, and and that's the interesting thing here. Obviously, they want uh, an appeals court to weigh in on this issue, but they won at a lower court, and so they don't really have the procedural uh, posture to take it to an appeals court. So. Um, they strike this deal with this plaintiff that requires the plaintiff to take it up to an appeals court. Um, attorneys in other roundup cases pretty immediately called foul on this. In a filing with the 11th Circuit where this is on appeal um, on April 22nd, they called this arrangement a, quote, pay to appeal scheme and uh, a, quote, brazen manipulation of our judicial system. Uh, they accused Bayer of basically using its financial heft to buy themselves an appellate ruling on a favorable decision that they themselves were unable to appeal. The quote, the settlement, which I should say they they put in scare quotes, um, yeah. the, the settlement agreement erodes the very foundation of our justice system, which is premised on the principle that opposing parties are actually adversarial, not paying each other to manufacture controversies and seek advisory opinions. So what they basically say is that the court lacks the jurisdiction to hear this appeal um, because there's no live controversy. These two parties are working together on the appeal. I love how this one's starting to feel like a really complicated final exam question in a law school class. Um, like, can they actually do this very <laughs> yeah. unusual thing? Um, I mean, it when you explain the other um, people in the other roundup cases crying foul over this, it makes a lot of sense to me. But I know Bear must have some responses that they've mounted. So what do they say? Yeah, I mean, they said the whole thing was sort of you know, just above board and that they, they've made no secret that they want to get this question of preemption in front of an appeals court and hopefully the Supreme Court. Um, they think that they would win on that argument before the, you know, the current makeup of the Supreme Court. And 
Um, they say that this agreement is a form of what's known as a high-low settlement, which um, you, you sort of stipulate uh, certain awards, but you allow the case to move forward. You sort of set parameters for the way that a case um, could uh, you know, could end up. Um, and they say that precedent allows those kind of cases to be appealed and that both parties had good reasons for entering into this agreement. Quote, what is not proper is for non-parties to try to torpedo an arm's length settlement between two parties, which provides the plaintiff the opportunity to his recovery if he wins his appeal. Non-parties do not have a veto right over plaintiff's litigation strategy because they would prefer, for their own self-interested reasons, that a federal court of appeals not decide an important question of federal law. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot of details here, but it's a very interesting look, I think, at, um, you know, the, 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 there's two there's two big ways to look at this. I mean, are they buying themselves uh, a chance to get up before an appeals court in a case that otherwise should not be before an appeals court because this person, you know, it's or, uh, you know, uh, or are they doing this, this, you know, sort of standard uh, move? These two sides see it very differently. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what the 11th Circuit says about about this uh, sort of procedural tactic by Bayer. Guys, I have zero transition into our second story today because it has nothing to do with giant pharma companies. This one is self-driving cars. That's what well, I want we're to shifting talk about. gears, wouldn't you say? Oh, there we go. I knew we'd That's find good. it. Shifting gears, sure. That's the play. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we actually had a pretty sad story in, in recent days. There was an accident involving a Tesla. It resulted in two people actually died. And reportedly, the car was in what's called autopilot mode. That's basically an autonomous driving, um, you know, mode that te- that certain teslas have yeah in the aftermath of this crash a lot is going on but one of the big overarching questions i sort of wanted us to explore a little bit is who's liable the driver or the technology this is clearly a big episode for um you know thought exercise questions we kind of just talked about it in the bayer story in terms of you know uh you know settlement structure uh questions and things like that but this is obviously pretty interesting there this is the this is the sort of trademark feature of a tesla car and obviously when an accident like this happens it draws a lot of eyeballs um how are people approaching this question Yeah, there's a bunch of issues to consider, obviously, with with self-driving cars and what they mean for both safety and for liability. So our own Mike Curley wrote about this question, and he explained a bunch of stuff that I really didn't understand completely. One of them is an idea called um, this six-point scale of automation. And that's what could be used as a framework to understand the levels of this driving technology and just who might be on the hook when something goes wrong. Okay. SAE International, it's an, an engineering group. It's really well regarded in the automotive industry. They put out this six-point scale. And basically, it starts at a level zero, so that's no automation. And it goes all the way up to level five, which is full automation, where the vehicle drives itself without humans in all conditions imaginable. So broad range there. Okay. As you would expect, the squishy part's the middle. And yeah. Coincidentally, that's where we are in our current technology. Um, yeah. our, our technology right now is hovering with most cars that have some form of this at a level one or two. And that basically means like support features. So it can aid somebody who's an active driver. The driver is still involved, but you might have like park assist is a good example of something that would be like a level one. Mm-hmm. 
at the outside, you have a few companies that are all the way up to level three, and that's a real auto driving feature. And that requires a driver to give permission if you're at a level three, but still the car pretty much takes over at that point. And that's what some of the versions of Tesla offer. As you edge into levels three, four, and five, so it's like more and more autonomous driving. Yeah, sure. After a crash, the liability would also shift more and more toward car companies. And it would happen because they would be sued under theories of product liability instead mm-hmm. of the way we typically handle car crash suits now. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to, if, if this industry is going to take off at some point in the next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, they're going to have to figure out how exactly those lawsuits will go because there will be many of them presumably when we get there but what will what what would a product liability lawsuit involving a, a self-driving car crash what does that look like yeah i mean a lot of this of course is speculative but we have yeah. enough especially with that rubric of that scale to at least think it through now so i just wanted to kind of run down some things that attorneys should go ahead and start pondering now as this technology continues to take hold in our society so First, the litigation will likely eventually focus on whether the car essentially made decisions it shouldn't have. So you can expect that there'll be lots of testimony from software engineers about what say, the parameters is, of the car are. This is spooky language already, but I, but, I, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I am following you, yes. Yeah, so, so that's one bucket, and it'll be a really big one. And then the companies could also face things like defect and false advertising claims. So some mm-hmm. examples there would be like, an allegation that the features aren't as good as advertised, that they couldn't be let loose in the way that that uh, right. the manufacturer said they could. Or additional claims could be something like, the system is actually not working as promised. So an example that has happened already is that some of these cars are spotting and uh, quote-unquote avoiding obstacles that aren't actually there. And that actually makes things more dangerous, not more safe. Sure. So, so that could be something that it, it's either they're promising things the car can't do or the car is actually doing something it's not supposed to. Right. Um, another big key evolving thing that I think we're going to see more and more is really just the type of evidence that we'll see in these suits. So, you know, a typical car crash suit, you expect stuff like testimony from bystanders or the involved drivers in the crash if you know if it's a non-fatal crash but what we're going to see more and more of is probably just hard data from the cars so yeah. the reason we're going to see a huge ramp up in that i think and uh, and all the experts predict is because manufacturers are already building into these cars having the vehicles record their own driver inputs and car inputs and also a ton of information about what's happening around the car because that's how the car functions. So that's already being recorded by the computers that are part of these cars. So it'll be really key in a lot of these, you know, future lawsuits. That's good. I, I, I whenever I'm driving, uh, I want to be recorded at all times because <laughs> I'm singing. Uh, I'm I'm curse I'm cursing in profoundly offensive Great. ways. Um, yeah. You know. So it's just so uh, just like want, a podcast want, recording then. Yeah, we want a recording of that for. <laughs> Posterity. Yes. Um, I would I would definitely recommend everybody read Mike's story. It traces a lot of the legal theories that are going to underpin litigation here. But I do want to um, see if we have anything de- like definitive to say about the fallout from this Tesla crash specifically. I mean, I assume there there's some uh, government oversight happening. I don't know if there's any litigation, but can you can you fill us yeah, in on that? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So for now, we know that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the National Transportation Safety Board are both investigating the accident. 
Yeah. Um, what we know preliminarily from reports is that no one was in the driver's seat of this Tesla at the time that it crashed. So local authorities say one person was in the past front passenger seat, another was in the back seat of the car. Their deaths obviously raised questions over the autopilot function and, and it being turned on, especially with no one behind the wheel, because Elon Musk has repeatedly said, even after this crash, that there's a safety feature in Teslas that require a driver to be behind the wheel when that autopilot is on. Yeah. So it should not happen this way. As a fail safe or exactly. whatever. Yeah. So, you know, one thing, though, is this isn't the first time Tesla's autopilot safeguards could have been circumvented. In 2018, um, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration issued a cease and desist letter to a company that sold an aftermarket product called Autopilot Buddy. And it was basically this weighted tool that tricked the vehicle sensors into thinking that you your hands were on the wheel so that you could not be behind the wheel. Yeah. Right. Um, and that obviously, you know, I, I understand the appeal. People hear you know, autonomous vehicles, they think they can kick back and not have to be in control, but that's not where the technology is right now. So it does create this tension. Um, we're going to have to see how this investigation pans out. A lot of observers say that the accident could actually spur more regulations and get the government to take a more active role. And they may do some things that sound pretty straightforward, but could make a difference here where they could make sure advertising about these cars doesn't make consumers think they can let the car do all of the driving just yet. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to see a lot more to come as this industry matures. Again, this week's Pro Se is sponsored by CaseFleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with CaseFleet's case management software. This software provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com slash law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. We're going to turn now to uh, the opioid crisis. There is a uh, There's an opioid trial underway in California that's actually the that's the second case ever, uh, the, the second opioid case ever to reach a trial um, where a group of California county and city governments are looking to collect billions of dollars from uh, all the usual suspects, uh, drug companies that they are accusing of deceptively promoting uh, narcotic painkillers. This uh, all sounds pretty familiar to this point, I'm sure. Um, drug companies have long like, sort of denied their responsibility in fueling the opioid epidemic. But what we're seeing play out in this case is something a little more unusual. We are seeing the defense pursue a pretty bold uh, legal strategy, which is um, questioning whether the crisis is even all that serious in the state of California. So, so they're, they're sort of tamping down the level of the threat at all, even before we get to questions about their responsibility in it. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean it's a subtle distinction, right? This this difference between their their responsibility versus the 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 you know the extent to which it is a crisis. But um, yeah, let's break down the case a little bit before we get to, so that to sort of unpack this this strategy that we're talking about this week. Yeah, so the case uh, traces back to 2014. There was, like I say, there were several counties and cities in California that basically unified to sue 
several drug giants, including Johnson and Johnson, Endo, Teva, Allergan is in this case, a couple others, um, over their role in uh, fueling the opioid epidemic. And this was at the time, most people believe this was the first instance of cities, local governments hauling big pharma into court to answer for their opioid related harms or, or however you want to phrase it. Um, as you probably know, hundreds of other cases have followed. Most of that is now housed in a huge multi-district litigation based out of Ohio right now. Um, but the California case remained on its own track, and it's the second case to ever reach the trial stage, and that trial got underway earlier this month. Uh, the legal questions are pretty straightforward. They, The counties basically say this is a, a straightforward public nuisance question. They're saying that the, the companies, you know, you know, had various false and misleading advertising campaigns for these drugs, which in turn led to them being overprescribed, which led to, you know, numerous uh, overdoses and deaths and hardship throughout these communities. So they're asking for as much as $50 billion from the companies to fund addiction treatments and an abatement program to sort of slow the spread of this crisis. Um, so, you know, to that point, uh, this is a pretty garden variety opioid case against the against the drug companies. Yeah, I want to get to the, the really interesting bit here. Um, that's the framework of what is alleged against these big defendants. But yeah. how did they decide to counter those arguments? Yeah, I would really recommend everybody, if you're interested in uh, the, 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 all the turns of the screw for opioid cases, uh, to check out our feature this week from our healthcare reporter, Jeff Overly, where he basically lays out that instead of distancing themselves from the cause as, as being part of the cause of this crisis, the companies are basically arguing that the crisis, for all intents and purposes, may not even exist, or at least it doesn't exist in a meaningful enough way to leave them on the hook for having to pay for anything. So what's happening, what we're basically seeing is an argument over the severity of the problem within these California counties as compared to the rest of the country. Um, again, Jeff's story has a lot of cool um, data and infographics that you can check out. I'll try and not drown everyone in numbers here. But what you have to know, basically, is that um, in 2018... California recorded about 2,400 opioid overdose deaths. That's about 5.8 deaths per 100,000 people. Now, that is undoubtedly a huge number of people to lose to, to a preventable cause of death, but it's far behind the rates of places you see like in Ohio, West Virginia, Upper New England, which is sort of thought of as the hotbed of this crisis. Um, and there was a J&J attorney from Morgan Lewis summarize the problem, summarize their position in court this week by basically just needing to contextualize these numbers. Uh, that, that attorney said, quote, while every death is its own tragedy, it's important to put that number in perspective. Um, this seems really, yeah. uh, I can imagine that the plaintiff side was not happy about this because they're basically saying like, hey, we made it way worse in other parts of the country. Yeah, well, th yes. I mean, that is the nut of the argument, and the and as you say, plaintiffs' counsel did not respond positively to this because you have to look at it um, at the sort of as part of like the broader march of opioid litigation. You know, most of these cases settle out, um, but there was there was one trial in Oklahoma that went to a verdict uh, two years ago. There's this MDL that's going on, and it is always there has always been an agreement about you know, the, the existence of a problem, and then you talk about who's who's at fault. Um, 
the plaintiff's counsel in this case is basically accusing the companies of trying to you know, soften the severity of the issue in bad faith. Um, the plaintiff's attorney uh, is a woman named Fidelma Fitzpatrick. She said, quote, these defendants should not be allowed to come into this courtroom and walk back what they have already admitted about this opioid crisis that we are facing. Um, so it's gotten pretty heated even at the uh, uh, early outset of this trial. It makes you wonder if there is some subtext here of or or, or if if the COVID pandemic is being used sort of as a foil here, right? Because this is a time when people yeah. have become so, you know, we have just gone through something that that killed 500,000 people. And, and I think, uh, you know, people are so much more uh, aware of that than I think there's been a lot of digital ink spilled about whether or not that has overshadowed the crisis that is still ongoing with the, epi- with the opioid epidemic. So um, I, I wonder if that played into, to a certain extent, this this strategy. But uh, you, you mentioned that the plaintiffs were surprised here. I mean, is this sort of, it, it seems like a surprising thing or, or tactic to, to take. Um, it, you know, how surprised should we be with, with them going this route? I hadn't thought about your point that we've, that we're all becoming jaded to death on a massive scale, yeah. uh, but it's definitely something worth considering. Um, with regard to the, to the, um, to the, you know, surprising nature of the, of the argument, um, as I kind of already hinted, in the context of opioid litigation, it's it's pretty shocking because there's never really been a company that advanced this uh, this argument. There's an ex- there's a general acknowledgement of a problem, and then we haggle over uh, who's at fault and to what degree they are uh, at fault. Um, but um, Jeff's story made a really important point, and it's that. The drone companies are now using a tactic that actually is fairly common, but in sort of smaller stakes product liability cases, which is what this is. You know, companies will often mount a two-pronged defense where they both at the same time deny being the source of this harm and also raise questions or try to get the court to doubt um, that the harm is genuine. Uh, One attorney uh, gave Jeff what I thought was a pretty illustrative example about uh, if a plaintiff, you know, filed suit after being injured while riding a scooter, um, it wouldn't be all that uncommon for the scooter manufacturer to argue both that um, the scooter was not the cause of the injuries and also maybe suggest that the plaintiff is exaggerating the severity of their injuries. Right. That kind of stuff happens a lot um, at the I- sort of more, more, more work-a-day product liability cases. We're seeing kind of a version of that here, but it's on such a grander scale because it's a problem that we've all been reading about in the news uh, for for a decade now. I think that's really interesting because when I was talking earlier about the Tesla crash and how those could turn into product liability suits, some of the reporting that Mike Curley had done indicated that one avenue for the car makers might be to say, hey, there's 36,000 auto fatalities a year. And if there's a handful from our autonomous driving vehicles that's way better way safer it's, so we shouldn't be on the hook for that it would def- yeah i mean i didn't even raise that at the time because i knew we were going to get to it in the context of this conversation but there are some par- some parallels uh for sure and if those cases ever reach a reach a trial i'm sure somebody will make that argument um but uh in terms of just where, where this leaves us with this opioid trial um and if you want to read a couple layers deeper into why they're making this argument when they haven't before uh, as you can probably guess, it comes down to money. Um, as I mentioned, the, the the counties have asked for as much as $50 billion from all these companies. Um, and that's an enormous amount of money, obviously. The last 
in Oklahoma uh, ended in a $465 million verdict against a bunch of companies. Now this we're asking for $50 billion here, the, the, the counties are. And so um, it, it behooves the companies to try and downplay the severity of the if, – if, if they can convince the court that it's not that big of an issue – it would stand to reason that the court would winnow down that figure um, quite a lot. Uh, so there have been a couple of other um, sort of deflection type defenses from the company so far. Kind of to your point, Amber, here about the about the about the cars. There was a lawyer um, for Allergan uh, that in court this week pressed the county's expert witness on the severity of other crises in California. She kind of just ticked off like, "What about all the people who die from the use of stimulants and methamphetamines, alcohol?" Texting and driving, tobacco use, obesity. So there's clearly an effort here to kind of muddy the water about the reach and severity of the crisis. Uh, it's something of a new frontier in in opioid cases, and uh, time is going to tell as to how uh, how effective it's going to be for these companies. Dinner show is something offbeat, and Bill, I think you have one for us today. <laughs> I do, um, and I'm just going to be upfront. Uh, I think this segment was entirely reverse engineered around wanting to say the phrase "quote men's butt enhancing padded trunks." <laughs> just going to get it out right? of the way early. But enough well, about Christopher Maloney uh, in uh, <laughs> uh, filming SVU. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yes, this is, a, I, this is a crazy story. I am intrigued uh, what happened yes. that will eventually get us uh, back around to that phrase again. Back around. Um, <laughs> uh, a former operations manager at Morris and Forster, a, a fairly prominent law firm, um, pled guilty this week to using the firm's corporate card to go on a $400,000 spending spree. Uh, on unauthorized Jeez. personal purchases, four hundred thousand dollars. That's a that's a lot I, of money to spend. I would like to hear about the kind of person that can go on a four hundred thousand dollar spending spree. What's what's the deal with this guy? Yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty thrifty guy. I think I would struggle to even find things to spend it on, unless you're totally. buying like you know, you're thinking too like, small. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if you buy a friggin' Lamborghini or something, right. you could do it, I guess. But uh, yeah. So it's a guy named Andrew Robertson who was hired in 2017 as um, uh, an office operations manager at at MoFo, which is I, we should say the way that the firm themselves uh, refer yes. to themselves. Which is that's that that's not us being glib. They hold themselves out that <laughs> they way. do that themselves. Yes. Uh, so s- since he was tasked with ordering office supplies, uh, the job came with access to a corporate credit card. Robertson began his unauthorized spending spree approximately two months after he had been hired, which, again, like, bold move. Uh, that is very bold because I've worked at Law360 for, uh, I'm, I'm coming up on, like, seven years. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, I have a corporate card here and uh, haven't put anything on it in months. No, I'm I mean. doing it all wrong, I guess. I am a I asked follower. you, <laughs> Yeah, right. I asked you to buy me some butt-enhancing trunks a few <laughs> years ago, and you, and you said no. I know. Um, and so, I'm such a killjoy. And, and that, well, no, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's principled management right there. And that's after that, we so. got over the litigation over that request. Uh, <laughs> I was reinstated. 
So so he began this spending spree and he started shopping at Amazon and Crate and Barrel and Williams Sonoma. Um, he was buying stuff on Instacart and Fresh Direct, like groceries. Um, he spent $45,000 renting out a storage unit and presumably to store <laughs> all of the things he was buying. Uh, and something like $275,000 that he straight up just transferred to his personal PayPal account. That does help explain that $400,000 number. Because if you're just yeah. straight up transferring cash, uh, you really get there a lot faster. So this guy... Um, and we should say, I mean, all of this, he, he has pleaded guilty, So, but all of this is, is uh, you know, derived from from uh, federal prosecutors, things they okay. said he did. Standard caveat. But so Robertson apparently tried to cover his tracks. He was he changed the descriptions of items to office supplies. He had everything delivered to his house. Um, he called some stuff catering in his expenses, but um, uh, <laughs> it was unsuccessful. I like to think about him. I, I I like to think about him in his apartment with a whiteboard that's like excuses for embezzlement <laughs> and just cr- okay catering. How much mileage can we get out of that? Uh, office supplies, the old thirty thousand dollars stapler. Everybody knows about that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the scheme yeah. did not work. So he was discovered uh, during an internal audit in October 2018, which, again, all of this was in a very compressed time frame. Sure. Um, yeah. That resulted in him getting fired. The issue was then clearly at some point referred to federal prosecutors who took it from there. Last week, Robertson uh, pled guilty to a charge of mail fraud. Um, he faces sentencing in August. Uh, Mofo, the firm, released uh, a statement after that welcoming this outcome, stressing that, quote, uh, Mr. Robinson's actions did not impact any of the firm's clients. Um, end quote. They, of course, wanted to make sure that none of these wacky <laughs> sure. purchases had been billed to any clients or anything like that. Well, Bill, let's do the thing that you've been angling for since the start of this segment, which is can you just tell us all the crazy stuff he bought? Amber, thank you so yeah. much for asking. Just, just, just take us through here. Uh, so he bought tons of shoes. First off, um, he bought a, a snake. I'm on skin, board with him now. A snakeskin sneaker from Gucci. Um, more than a dozen pairs of Nikes. Uh, brown leather sneakers from Versace and Ooh. a pair of Prada penny loafers. He mm. also bought so he's a hype beast. Prada shorts, uh, a Burberry sweater, which was, of course, cashmere. I mean, uh, <laughs> a Ferragamo belt, a bunch of stuff like this. But there's there's better stuff than just the sort of the the, the fashion items. He bought a ten carat gold pinky ring with a half carat diamond. He bought a um, pinky ring. That's great. Okay. He bought a Halloween costume with a wig and a tuxedo, which is <laughs> awesome. Great. Uh, weirdly enough, he bought a Jets cap, which is just. Buying a Jets cap with an embezzled funds is just <laughs> iconic Jet fan behavior. Wow. Love it. Uh, I mean, I have to say before you wrap this up, though, that I think maybe I'm slowly starting to like the embezzler because I love shoes. I love Halloween. That fashion sounds fun. He seems like a blast. Sure. I mean, I mean, Andy Robertson, look, if you're listening, we support your moves. Just you got to use your own money. Yes. Exactly. Um. The brazenness is real. I mean, just he just he just did the thing. I mean, he did. Yeah. just went right for it. That's, uh, the, that's okay. the move of a man that owns a pinky ring. I think. Sure. That's true. Um, finally, last but certainly not least, uh, he bought what prosecutors listed as quote men's butt enhancing padded trunks from a company 
that's called and 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 this is true rounder bum hmm. <laughs> so Look, you know we've talked about how there can be false advertising but that is truth in advertising that is a well-named company you get what they say they are Look, fellas, if you're out there and you've got access to a company credit card and you feel like your tush just isn't there, you know, maybe head over to Rounderbum. Uh, they're not sponsoring the show, uh, but they seem like a company that might. I mean, I wonder if he I wonder if he put on the Versace shoes and the Nikes and was asking people and also the trunks oh, the, and, yeah, said to, sure. and said and said, do these shoes make my ass look big and see if people would tell him the truth or not. Right, right. Oh, it's like a, the, that, the key that's, question. That's like a test of friendship, you know. Yeah. That is that's the key thought to end this segment on. Uh, very happy that we've reverse engineered something just to get to that punchline. Yeah, it's um, great. But it's been a great show, fellas. Thanks a lot for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters Dave Simpson, Cara Salvatore, Kevin Penton, Mike Curley, and Jeff Overly. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, head over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.